I want to start off by, um, yeah, with just this. You know, how did this message of Christianity, uh, the proclamation that Jesus is the world's true king, that this, this message that Jesus made us, that Jesus knows us entirely, that Jesus died for us, how did that message, it's a message Christians call the gospel, which means good news, how did that message grab a hold in the first century and spread like wildfire in a radically pluralistic culture like the Roman Empire? You know, that's an interesting question. And we've been answering that question by looking at the book of Acts this summer. It's a book that records how Christianity exploded in the first century. And you know, whether or not you're a Christian, it's just an interesting question. Like, how did the world's top faith, Christianity is the largest faith in the world, how did that go from being this small little group of people and just explode like it did? You know, and so the book of Acts records this, and it records, it's a lot like a, like a, like a movie in which it goes to different locations because it's showing how it's expanding, right? And so it's a very geographical book. I'm going to actually have a map up here in a second, right? It's a very geographical book because it's, it's moving from location to location to talk about how Christianity exploded in the first century. And it starts in Jerusalem, and then there's persecution of the church, and then it goes north up into Syria, and then there's this uh, Ethiopian eunuch. We know it went down into Africa. And this morning, we're going to see how Christianity ended up going up into Europe. And so that's what we're going today. Uh, and, and it all begins in Acts chapter 16. And if you have a Bible, there's actually some Bibles sitting in front of you. You can turn to page 1176, 1176. And uh, that's where we begin this morning, Acts chapter 16. We're going to be moving through Acts chapter 16. If you have a seatbelt, buckle up, okay? Because we're doing a lot of Bible this morning. Open your mouth wide and your ears. Okay, here we go. So in verses 1 to 5, it tells us about the team. Who is the team that is going to go and reach Europe? Well, it tells us that it includes the Apostle Paul, formerly Saul of Tarsus. I did a whole sermon on him. Go back a few. You can find out about that guy. It includes a guy named Silas, who was a very respected uh, leader in the Jerusalem church. And then it tells us in these verses that they added this young guy named Timothy, okay? So picture two older men in their later 30s, early 40s, and then a young guy in his later teens, early 20s. And it tells us that uh, they didn't want to go to Europe, okay? It's interesting to note that Paul's intent was not to originally go into Europe, but Paul believed there was more fruitful places, okay? So if you have this little map here, you can see uh, they, they pick up Timothy here, okay, in Lystra, all right? They come up through here, and then they're coming right up in here, and Paul's thinking, Bithynia. Oh, Bithynia. Man, that strategy right there. And it tells us the Holy Spirit's like, no, Paul, can't go to Bithynia. Then he's like, Mysia. Oh, Asia, Mysia. And it's like, and they're like, here. And it's like, no, not Mysia. Okay? And you can read it right there. It's in, it's in, verses, in verse 6, it says, the Holy Spirit said no. In verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus says no to Mysia. But finally, in verse 10, it says, God, the Father, there's the Trinity. Go back to my Trinity sermon. God, the Father, you just had the Holy Spirit, you had the Spirit of Jesus, now you got that God, the Father, says, okay, you can go on to Troas. And so they're over in Troas, and that's where we find that Paul has um, uh, this dream. They're just waiting in Troas. You know, these doors were shut, which, by the way, that's how God guides, right? He shuts doors. We don't know how the Holy Spirit shut the door. We don't know if they all had this impression like, hmm, no, I don't, I'm not feeling it. Or if, like, there were circumstances like there's a war. You cannot go to Bithynia right now. We don't know. 
But we know the doors were shut for Bithynia, for Mysia. And so then they're just, they go to Troas. They're like perplexed, like, okay. And that night, they have, Paul has a dream. And there's a man in Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Come across the water. And so Paul wakes up and he's like, look, I had this dream. Like, that seems like God's guiding us there. And that's, and they just happen to be strategically in Troas because of those closed doors. And so now they're ready to take the boat across, right? And so that is, um, that was what brings us to verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolitan, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. Now, this is a very important verse because it sets up everything you need to know about this mission. Number one, it tells you about the location, all right? Uh, where are they going? They're going to Philippi. Philippi, it says, is a leading city. It's a, it's a very well-known city. They pass through other cities. They make a beeline to Philippi. There's a strategy here. They want to go to a significant area, all right? So they go to Philippi. Philippi is a significant city, and they go there. It's a very famous city. It's a historic city. It was named after uh, Philip of, uh, of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great. But it's more famous because if you know anything about uh, Julius Caesar, who was killed by uh, Brutus and Cassius, um, they, they took their armies there, and that's where Augustus Caesar defeated them there at Philippi. And so he made Philippi a Roman colony. And as a result, they were very proud to have these connections with Rome. If you're from Philippi, you're very proud to be a Roman colony. So this is the place they decide to go, okay? And by the way, there's a lot of Roman military veterans there, which I think we're going to meet one later on who's actually attending a, guard, attending a jail. So this is, the, this is the location. It's a leading city. There's a strategy here. We're not just going to go anywhere. We're going to go to Philippi. This is a significant place for that whole region of Macedonia. But it's also significant because, and you can miss this, it's significant because it tells us that they were joined by a fourth person at this point. The language moves from they did this, they did that, to we. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and then we remained in the city for some days. Who is the we? Well, the author here is Luke, the physician, okay? He's joined Paul and Silas and Timothy at Troas, and ventures with them from Troas to Philippi. Many people believe that Luke was from that area, but um, he joins them. So here we go. You got a new city, you got a new continent, you got a new people, you got to reach them. What are they going to do? How do they do it? Let's look at Paul's strategy in verse 13, okay? And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So Paul's strategy was fairly straightforward. What he would do when he would try to reach a new city is he would go to the local Jewish temple, okay, or the Jewish synagogue, all right? Not the temple, they didn't have a temple, but they had a synagogue. Uh, but, and, and if they didn't have enough men, you needed 10 men in order to qualify as a synagogue. If they didn't have enough men, then it would be just a place of prayer. And that's what this appears to be here, just a place of prayer. But it's where the Jews... And those who were Gentiles who had come to worship the God of Israel were meeting. Paul would go there. And when he was there, he would, he would share the news that the, that the Messiah who's promised in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, has come. Has come in the person of Jesus Christ, who was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day. And then Paul could say, and you know, I met him on the road to Damascus. He appeared to me. He's alive. 
He's the Messiah. That's what Paul would do. That's what they would do. So they came to these prayer meetings. At this point, it's a prayer meeting, or they go to the synagogue, because those people are already reading the scriptures that are pointing to Jesus. And so you've got a really good inroad there. And it doesn't take long to see the first convert in Europe. Very interesting. Who was the very first person to believe in Christianity in Europe? Well, it tells us in Acts 16, verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Lydia, who's Lydia? Well, it tells us a few things. Number one, she's not even from Europe, okay? So it's a non-European. She's from Thyatira, which is like Asia, okay? Uh, by the way, there's maybe a message for us today. The people that are turning to Christ in Europe are actually non-Europeans, all right, from what I understand, okay? But um, it, it was that way in the beginning, too. Um, so she's, she's this Asian woman, um, and it tells us that she, it doesn't say anything about her husband, so we're, it seems to be that she's single for some reason. She might be divorced, she might be a widow, we don't know. And it tells us that she sells purple goods. What's that about? Well, purple's a very expensive color to produce, and only people that are very wealthy can buy purple garments, purple goods, okay? And so she's in the textile industry. She's selling purple. And so who is this first convert to Europe? Well, the first convert to Europe was a Gentile Asian businesswoman who sold luxury goods, fashion, namely, okay? High-end fashion. That's what she was doing there, all right? Very interesting. Um, And she comes to faith. As Paul is speaking, it says, the Lord opened her heart, okay? Opened her heart to pay attention. And this is how it works. God typically uses human words. That's how God works. Yeah, it's Paul's words, but God is using Paul's words in order to open her heart. And I'm sure that Paul, as he was speaking, noticed that she's like getting it. You know, when I'm speaking, I'm looking at all of you to see who's locking in. Like, okay, who, are they getting this part? You know, well, that was what happened. Like, you've, you've done it. You've been speaking. And you see somebody, you're like, Wow, they're clicking. They're clicking. You, you, suddenly, you can see light. I'm sure Paul saw that. Paul's like, she's into it. She's getting it. She's like, wow. And then she came to faith. Um, and it tells us she and her whole household were baptized. So it's not just her. Back then, when, when a leader of a, of a household came to faith, typically the whole household would end up coming to faith. And that's exactly what happens. And it doesn't mean just her children. It means the entire the household, the extended household, the, the in-laws. Back then, you had everybody in the house, and you had servants. And so this is pretty cool. And then, uh, immediately in verse 15, if you have a Bible, it says that she immediate, her immediate response was hospitality. you got to stay at my house. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, come stay at my house. In fact, she pulls the guilt card. If, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come stay at my house. I love that, right? She's, this is one of the, she's a nurturer. She just, she's got it, and she's got a big house. She's a business, she probably had a nice house. She can put four men immediately, drop them right in her house. She's ready to go. And they're staying at the Motel 6. I don't know where they're staying, but it's probably not a good... They're like, sweet. Look, things are looking up. The mission is going well, you know? The mission team has been assembled. They found their target. They've seen an entire household convert. And they've got a great place to stay, a nice place to stay. This woman's in the fashion industry. Sweet, it's taken off. But as is the case, typically, when the gospel is moving forward, there's opposition, And that's what happens on the following Sabbath as they're going to the place of prayer. And we're going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. 
She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. So the team gets some unwanted attention from this slave girl. It tells us she has a spirit of divination. You know, the Greek is really interesting. It says a pneuma python. She literally has a snake spirit. And in that region, we know that there was this belief that those people that were devotees of Apollos could have actually the spirit of Apollos come within them, and they could tell the future. They could fortune tell. And as they did that, they would speak with a hissing sound like a tranquilicus. And so she is giving these, she's giving this. And the, and the thing is, she's a slave. She's making a lot of money from this fortune telling. But the thing is, is that she's spot on. It's not just that she's able to tell the future. She's spot on, uncanny. And Luke deconstructs the whole situation. Luke says, yeah, you might think she's fortune telling. There is a dark power at work here underneath what you see. There is a dark supernatural demonic power that is giving her the ability to do this. And, and by the way, you know, a lot of fortune-telling, a lot of the psychics, it's, it's just a money-making sham. But if you meet somebody that actually can do that stuff, the Bible's pretty clear, watch out. Because there can be a dark power behind that stuff. And, and, and she does this, okay? Now, notice what she's saying. What she's saying is spot-on true. These are servants of the Most High God. They're, they're teaching the way of salvation. That's true. By the way, in the Gospels, every time Jesus encounters a, an evil spirit, they speak the truth. It's very interesting. But it's not helpful, okay, especially day after day. I don't know how you are when you have a, somebody just kind of, I, don't, I used to teach school. I, I can only take so much noise. And when I was a school teacher, I would come home at the end of the day, and I would, for the first hour, I would just sit in my apartment in silence and drink a Sprite. <laughs> and I'm sure with this girl, everywhere you go, there she is, you know, calling out. And it's just, it's, just, it's just unhelpful, okay? And so I love it. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, <laughs> okay? Yeah, he got annoyed. I would get annoyed. You would get annoyed, you know? Having become greatly annoyed, finally, after many days, turns and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, you come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. That's just an idiom for right there. It came out. So Paul was greatly annoyed. And, and it wasn't just that, you know, I mean, it wasn't just that he didn't want Satan as his PR man, okay? <laughs> uh, he was also greatly annoyed because he saw the bondage this spirit had this young woman in. And he couldn't take it any longer. And so he turns, and in the name of Jesus, not his own name, in the name of Jesus, he has the spirit cast out. Um, and she's freed. She's freed from the power of darkness. Now, we don't know what happened to her. This is, there's a lot of, you know, Acts is kind of giving a distillation, right? It's kind of like giving a distillation. And this is one of those things where, like, well, what happened to her? You know? What, uh, what happened to her? Was she, was, uh, I mean, you hope that, like, Lydia was like, well, we got a big house. Come to our house. I'll adopt you. I'll buy you from your slave owners. And, and she became a Christian, and she, that's hope, but it doesn't tell us what happened. So we don't know what happened to her, but we do know that this caused some problems, all right? Look what happens. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them into the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, 
and they are disturbing the city, and they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept our practice. So it didn't take long for the owners of this girl, the slave owners, who were, you know, basically spiritually pimping her, to realize that the golden goose is no longer laying eggs, like she can no longer tell the future like she did before. And they're filled with vengeance, and they want to retaliate, okay? And so they go after Paul and Silas, and they drag Paul and Silas into the marketplace. It would be the main kind of public square there in Philippi. Now, they didn't grab Luke, and they, and they didn't grab Timothy, and, and we actually find out why. You know, Timothy is half Greek, Luke is Greek. Paul and Silas, frankly, they looked more Jewish, they, you know, but, and they knew, and they grabbed them, and, and what they're going to do is they're going to shift it from an issue of economic loss, okay, and they're going to they're going to move it to an issue of, of an ethnic problem. These people are Jews, and 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 also to an illegal problem. It's illegal for us to practice this. It's a political problem. So they're really hiding really what what their real motive is, you know. And and the charge, of course, is ironic. Think if you're the Apostle Paul. You know, you go to Jerusalem and you're accused of not being Jewish enough. You go to Antioch, you're not you're accused you're not Jewish enough. Paul's in Galatia, he's not Jewish enough. But right here, what's he accused of? He's not Roman enough. I mean, Paul's like, I, I can't win here. I, I just, I, what's what, what's, what's going to happen here? I can't win. Um, and so, you know, their charge works. It's just filled with prejudice. You know, it's anti-Semitic. These men are Jews. It's filled with racial pride. We Romans. Um, and it works. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them. Whew, gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, and they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. All right. Like I said, sometimes life can turn around pretty quickly. You're going from, you know, living, you know, pimp my crib, businesswoman's, you know, house to like, you're you're in public. the, the, The magistrates rip their clothes off have them beaten with rods. Jewish law, you could only give 40, 40 lashes with a rod. Roman law, there was no limit. And so if it says it was severe, we know it was at least 40, probably more, okay? They are then taken, and they are thrown into prison. They're thrown into uh, really solitary confinement. I mean, the worst part of the prison, it says the inner prison, okay? So they're thrown into maximum security. Um, and, and additionally, they're fastened with stocks. And, and just so you know, like stocks, that was part of the torture, okay? Stocks aren't just like, we're just going to secure you. These stocks would spread you out, okay? And you got your legs locked in. It's, you don't, again, I mean, this is not a good situation. So what would you do, you know, if you're in this situation? Here you are. What's, what did you do wrong? Well, you actually liberated a slave girl, okay? You freed her from her oppressor, Okay? So you did something good, and it's resulted in you being stripped and being beaten, and now you're in prison, your, your back is just bleeding, you're, you can't, you, you got your legs spread apart in an uncomfortable way, and, and even though you're exhausted, you can't sleep. What would you do? What would I do in that situation, okay? How would you feel? How would you, I feel? Well, look what happened. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Wow! What? Unbelievable! 
Nothing can keep them from praising God. Now look, I don't want to back up a truckload of guilt on us right now, okay? Easily we could go there. But we do want to sit with this for a second. And maybe even ask the question, what is it that keeps us from praising God? You know, I'm ashamed to say that if I get behind a driver who's not driving the speed that I would like to be driving, (laughs) if I get to a light and it takes about 20 seconds longer than I thought, I can get thrown off. I can go sideways. I can be in a place where I'm, I'm not really able to praise God. Amazing, their situation. And there they are. They're singing hymns. You know, never in the history of that dirty, rat-infested prison was the sound of men praising God ever heard. And as that echoes through the prison, it says the other prisoners were listening. I'm sure the jailer could hear it too. And people were like, what is that sound? Are these men crazy? They're singing praises. And as that sound continues on, and it gets later, it says it's midnight, it gets later, and people start lulling into sleep, it tells us something very dramatic happened. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were just unfastened. God sends an earthquake. Now, now how do we know it was God? Well, I mean, the timing is very, you know, it's kind of interesting, right? (laughs) Interesting timing. It's one of those like, this timing is a little uncanny. But earthquakes don't typically open doors and, you know, take chains off. Okay, this is a God earthquake, all right? And earthquakes are a big deal in the Bible. There's a, there's, there's so, if you just go through your Bible sometime and pay attention to all the earthquakes. You know, earthquakes, you know, it's the, the earth is quaking at Mount Sinai when God descends on Mount Sinai. And Isaiah, in his vision, when he sees the Lord in his temple, the temple is quaking. You can go through the Bible, we won't do it right now, number 16, Haggai 27, Psalm 97, 104, there's a whole theology of earthquakes in the Bible. And the basic idea of earthquakes is this. It's the idea of displacement. The biblical theology of earthquakes is this idea of displacement, that God in his glory, glory means weightiness. God in his weightiness, God is so weighty, he's so powerful that when he comes down upon something that is weak, which is everything else, it gets displaced. And as it's displaced, it shakes and moves out of the way. And that's what's happening here. As we see, as God comes in his glory, this earthquake reminds us that there's nothing, no matter how secure, that is beyond the power of God. And that's what happens. These doors just fly open and just come off. Now again, I have to ask myself, what would I do if I was in this situation? You know, here I am, (laughs) I'm in this jail, You know, I'm like, you know, trying to praise God. And then the earthquake happens. My door flies open. Everything falls off. And I'm thinking, praise Jesus. I've been freed. I'm free from this rat-infested, stinky hellhole that I never should have been in in the first place. Thank you, Jesus. I'm out of here. I'm making a beeline for the door. 
Look at Paul. When the jailer woke up and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Don't harm yourself, for we are all here. You know, Paul's immediate response is not concern for his freedom, but the jailer. He yells out in the darkness, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And of course, this is the jailer's worst nightmare. In Roman law, if your prisoner escaped, you had to receive the penalty that that prisoner had. And the jailer does the math pretty quick, and he's like, not only am I going to be killed, but it's going to be a torturous death. And so he's like, I'm just kill myself right now. It's his worst nightmare. And so the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So, notice what happens here. Here Luke details the second conversion. The first one was Lydia, right? Okay, very, you know, the Lord just opened her heart. It's one of those, you know, just shared the gospel. Oh, that sounds great, you know? This one's an earthquake, okay? God uses an earthquake. What a situation. You know, earthquakes in this part of the world, they were seen as a mark of divine displeasure. And so it's not just that the jailer is shaking in fear and trembling because he just went through an earthquake. When I go through an earthquake, I'm always like, oh, I'm a little shaky. It's not just that he's thinking the prisoners have escaped, He's also thinking those weird guys that were singing praise that we've all heard because this crazy demonic woman has been announcing that they are servants of the Most High God, announcing the way of salvation. They actually are servants of the Most High God, announcing the way of salvation. (laughs) And so he asked, what must I do to be saved? But there's also something else going on in his question, and I want you to hear it. You know, think about this. He saw them come in, and he's seen so many come in. And he's this old, grumpy, you know, retired veteran, Roman guard guy, you know. And he just, you know, puts them in the stocks, doesn't give a rip about their bleeding. What a, shut up, I've heard it all. And they're just starting praising God. Like, what's up with these guys? What is up with these guys? They're in their worst situation, and they're totally able to handle it with joy. And now he's in his worst situation. And so he asked them, what must I do to be saved? How do I have what you have? Now notice what they don't say. They don't say, that's not that bad. You're not under divine wrath. That's all myth. God is love, love, love. It's all going to be good. Everything's going to work out. Don't be so hard on yourself. No, notice what they say. They recognized his need to be made right with a holy God whose glory can displace things. And they said, yes, you do need to be saved. You need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. And this message, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, it's been called the gospel, the good news in a nutshell. If you want to boil down what Christianity is about, at the end of the day, it's this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. 
And, and, and just to clarify, like we use the word believe in a very different word. The Greek word here is pistis. We use the word believe in a very different word, way. We're like, ah, oh, yeah, Jesus, he existed. Sure, yeah, I might have rose from the dead. Yeah, whatever, okay. The word pistis means to put your confidence in, to rely on, to trust in. And it means to put your total confidence in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. It means to bank your life on Jesus. You're banking everything on Jesus, on what he's done, on who he is. And if you're not a Christian, I want to ask you this morning, what about you? You can ignore God. You can pretend he doesn't exist. You can hope that when you face God, that you can talk yourself out of a paper bag, the God who's seen everything, who knows everything. You can stand before this God who is beautiful and glorious, who came and died in the person of Jesus for you. But the good news is, is that you don't have to somehow make it on that day. That because Jesus came through his death, burial, and resurrection, you can be made completely loved and accepted by God. You can become his child. And some of you have never trusted in Christ And I would say to you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now notice what happens in verses 33 and 34. You know, Lydia's changed. When Lydia became a Christian, you know, she was one of those women, she probably loved to bake. I don't know, it's all in my head. But she just was, come to my house. You know, I'm gonna feed you. I'm gonna take care of you. You know, I've got a great house. Let me just bless you. What does the jailer do? The jailer says, let me wash your wounds. Here, let's get you out of this jail. Let's get you a warm meal. He takes them home. He cares for them. You know, this is the guy that one minute he's throwing them in the stocks, doesn't give a darn. It's a church after all. And the next minute he's caring for their wounds, loving them. Total transformation. It's beautiful to see. It's amazing, crazy. Turn around. What a night. I mean, what a night! What a night. They go from being in jail to being hosted by the jailer. I mean, that's, a, that's another turnaround. This is all these turnarounds, right? I mean, I'm telling you, it could be a movie. It's amazing. And it was all because they weren't worried about getting out of jail. They weren't so focused on the circumstances at hand, but they had another way of viewing that. They had one overall concern that trumped everything. They wanted everyone around them to know Christ. That was their number one concern. That's how they were living life. And so even with this earthquake, they, they, they could see it wasn't for them. It wasn't about them. It was for the jailer. And, and we find out it wasn't about them. It wasn't for them in verses 35. Verse 35, it says, uh, but when it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those people go. The next morning of the earthquake, they were going to go anyways. So the earthquake was never for them. And they could see that. The magistrates were going to let him go. God sent that earthquake for the jailers. And you know, oftentimes God sends hardship to people so they can find Christ. And and they could see that, these apostles. They could see that. And they were able to move into that. And there's a message for us right there with the people in our lives who are going through hardship. Now, the story ends with a very odd twist. There's been lots of odd twists in the story, but this really odd twist. Again, something I didn't see coming, something that even Paul's companions must have thought, Paul's really pushing his luck now. Um, The magistrates, you know, 
they come and they, they, well, first they send a message like, you know, they send a message to their, there's all these official Roman words I can give you. Okay, they're praetors to the lictors, whatever. There's a whole system there. But he, they send a message through their police force. You guys can go. And Paul, look what Paul says. But Paul said to them, they've beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Okay, what? Like, what? First off, why does Paul pull the Roman citizen card right now? That would have been helpful while you're being stripped and beaten, right? Like, did he really need to even go to jail? Like, what? Did Paul suddenly remember after, you know, like, like did he suddenly remember after all, like, wait a second, I'm a Roman citizen, <laughs> and I got my rights, and I'm going to get my rights, and these people are going to hear about it. You know, as Paul's ego shatters, like, I don't think so. Don't you know who I am? I'm Paul the Apostle. And unless they come here groveling, I will never leave this prison. Is that Paul? No. You just got to read some Paul, and you find out that's not him at all. You know, uh, later on, in a, a letter to this same church that's being established in Philippi, he writes this. Everything, all your status, all your degrees, it's worthless in comparison to knowing Jesus. He says, Everything is worthless in comparison to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I've discarded it all. I count it as garbage. It's nothing. All my degrees, anything that can give me any little status, it's, it's worthless. The only thing that matters is if you know Jesus. That's really what matters. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You know? What's going on? Paul Paul here, the reason why he pulls the Roman citizen card right now is he's not worried about his reputation. He's not concerned with his rights. There's a whole sermon in here on rights, you know. I mean, seriously, like, there is a place for rights are really helpful, but if you live your life all the time walking around with, I just need to get my rights and defend my rights, and what a, what a sad way to live. There's something so much more beautiful, right? And we see it here. Paul's not worried about his rights his concern is for this fledgling church. You know, imagine the situation, right? Like, if they get marched out of town looking like they're sub-Roman, you know, lawbreakers, it's not going to be easy for this church, you know? And so Paul says, well, let them, ha- let them come here. Tell us personally. And they knew they were in trouble. We actually know Roman cases where people that, that did this to Roman citizens were like, in serious, they were demoted. In some cases, they were actually killed, okay? So the, the magistrates are like, he's a Roman citizen. We moved a little quick on that. And so they come, and Paul's like, and so I heard you have something to tell me. We're sorry, Paul. Um, we, we, we're really sorry. And Paul's, hmm? What do you think, guys? Do you think, they're, you think that's... All right, okay, all right, I'll, I'll leave, but I, I got some things to do first, and I'll leave when I want to go, because I'm a Roman citizen. I like it. So what does he do? Um, so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And so he and Silas leave, but not without first encouraging this fledgling church that's been established in Philippi. And then note the pronoun change from we to they. 
Paul doesn't leave them alone. He leaves Luke, the physician, the 100% non-Jewish guy, right, to take care of them. And what a church. Here's your church, Luke. We've got a wealthy Asian businesswoman. We've got an old, retired Roman <laughs> in his family. Maybe some slave girl that was demon-possessed. I mean, that's what the gospel does. It brings all these people together, you know? It's interesting, you know, Paul as a Jew would pray, thank you, God, that you didn't make me a woman or a slave or a pagan. And what does the church leave behind? A woman, a slave, and a pagan, you know? And there they are. So what do we do with these stories? You know, we hear these stories, and we hear these stories about people like Paul. And we're confronted, you know, because we go sideways at a traffic light, and the people are, you know, they're beaten in prison, and they're praising God, you know. And then, you know, we have some kind of crisis, and all we think about is ourselves, and they're thinking about how can this lead people to Christ. And they're laying down their rights and whatever they can do in order to further the gospel. I mean, my temptation is to say, well, they're super Christians, these are super, there's a story of super Christians. You know? Paul's a super Christian. You know, but Paul, he called himself the chief of all sinners. We say, well, he's made of a different metal. Paul would say, I'm just, I'm a clay vessel. I'm, I'm fragile. I'm a clay, I'm, I'm a clay vessel. But Paul, you're an apostle. Paul says, I'm, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. I think something else is going on here that when we use the super Christian label, we miss. You know, when I was 20, I had a Paul and Silas experience. I was in the Middle East. Um, we were sharing our faith, and we were taken to prison. Um, they confiscated our Bibles. They took us to prison. One of our members of our team was beaten. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't beaten. Um, we weren't there for long. We didn't know how long we were going to be there. But something happened to me in that moment. Me and all the people I was with. The Holy Spirit just dropped on us. We were scared. They were telling us, like, you know what? In this country, you could be here for years for no reason. You're not in America anymore. And we were scared. And the Holy Spirit just dropped on us. And in that prison, we just started singing praises. Like, we were just praising God. I'm like, what? We're like, what's going on? We don't know what's going on. But we had tremendous joy that Jesus was going to be with us. And it was going to be okay. And you know what? As long as we can share the gospel, it doesn't matter. And I think when we read these stories, what we miss is that the Holy Spirit has resources for us that we seldom tap into because we're walking on a different path than they were walking Paul wasn't a super Christian, but his life was wrapped up in the gospel. And the Holy Spirit has resources for those whose lives are wrapped up in the gospel. The Holy Spirit has joy and courage. The Holy Spirit has this ability to love through hardship and in hardship and poise. You know, again, to the Philippian church, Paul writes... I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What was that secret? It was making your life about the gospel. 
putting the gospel ahead of your own comfort. It's about making your life about glorifying God, about knowing Jesus Christ and making him known. And if, when that is what your life is about, everything changes. Everything. It's a different ballgame. Your unwanted circumstances suddenly, a whole new twist. You know, Paul and Silas are in jail, but their life is wrapped up in the gospel. And suddenly, they can praise God in that situation. They can know that they are there for a reason, and therefore, nothing can stop them from praising God. It's a good little test. Can I praise God here? Can I praise God here? It changes how you view difficult people. You know, if you're a high school student, who is the jailer in your high school? Who is the grumpy, bully person? You know, when, you, when your life is wrapped up in the gospel, you have eyes to see that that's a person who needs God. And suddenly, you can see them through different lenses. You can see past who they are and see that they need to know God. You know, it, it changes your decisions. You know, if, you know, decisions, you can sit there and you be like, oh my gosh, I could ruin my life. What am I going to do? This or that? You know, you're a young adult. Do I do this? You know, maybe I do this, go this way. You know, I don't know. What, big decisions happen in all stages of life. You, you, what am I going to do? You can become flattened, obsessed, crazy. Or you can say, you know what? Can I share the gospel in this situation? Yeah. Can I share the gospel in this? Yeah. All right. It's a win-win. And that's Paul. Paul says in Philippians again, if I live, I can glorify God. If I die, I get to be with God. It's a win-win. Life's a win-win. It's a win-win for me. It completely changes everything. And I think the problem really at the core when I look at myself is I don't really believe the gospel. Yeah, the gospel, that's a nice thing. That's helpful. I get to go to heaven when I die. But it isn't really what I'm believing in. Pistis. I'm banking on that my life is about. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that the gospel came to Europe. And many of us, Lord, we can trace our own faith back from people that came from Europe to this country. But Lord, we thank you that the gospel continues to move. Lord, we thank you for the missionaries that are sent out from North Korea, Lord. Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in South America. We thank you, Lord, that you've counted us worthy to be bearers of the gospel. And we pray that would be the mark of our lives, Lord, that we would center our lives not around narratives of the American dream, not around stories of us having some kind of quaint, idyllic, genteel life, but, Lord, that we would see ourselves fundamentally as people who've been given the best news there is. And that we would enter more deeply into the good news of who you are and that we would share that. And that would be what marks our life. May it transform our life. Help us, Lord, to become more and more people who are abandoned to your truth that you have changed all things in Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.